Welcome to this podcast from the Environmental and Energy Law Program at Harvard Law School. Today, Joe Goffman, our Executive Director, will be talking with Janet McCabe, who is EPA's Acting Assistant Administrator for the Office of Air and Radiation between 2013 and 2017, and Principal Deputy Assistant Administrator prior to that. She is currently Assistant Director for Policy and Implementation at Indiana University's Environmental Resilience Institute and Professor at the McKinney School of Law, and earlier in her career held senior positions in Indiana Department of Environmental Management and in the Government of Massachusetts. Janet will be explaining the critical significance of a policy memorandum issued by Scott Pruitt on May 9th of this year that changes the way EPA sets health-based air quality standards. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Uh, hi, Janet. Hi, Joe. Thank you very much for joining us, or at least for joining us by uh, by phone. As most people know, uh, Scott Pruitt has put a lot of resources of the EPA into either rolling back a host of specific regulations, weakening regulations and uh, emissions and pollution standards, or finding ways to avoid moving forward with new pollution standards, uh, even though there are continue to be air and water quality problems in, uh, in a number of areas in the country. One of the other major endeavors that Pruitt is leading inside the EPA is taking actions that change a number of internal practices um, that the agency has historically relied on to do its work and to carry out its public health mission. Those changes have gotten some attention, but not nearly as much attention as his attack on regulation and, frankly, his personal scandals. What we're trying to do here at uh, the Environmental and Energy Law Program is uh, compile reporting on an analysis of those kinds of internal changes. Because I think, as many uh, practitioners in this field know, those changes could easily be of much greater impact over the long haul in terms of defeating the agency's ability to carry out its public health mission. And we're here today to talk to you, Janet, about one of those internal practices. Of course, the reason we're talking to you is that uh, you are one of the, if not the, preeminent practitioners in the field of air quality uh, and air quality policy, having served in senior positions um, at the EPA uh, for seven and a half years during the Obama administration, and also having served in two different state governments doing this work. So there really is probably no one better in the country to talk to us today about a memo that was uh, released in early May that addresses a variety of changes in the way the agency will set air quality standards based on uh, public health. And what I'm going to do now is is ask you to just give us a a, a thumbnail sketch of, of what's in the memo and why it's so troubling from the perspective of EPA's work to uh, establish air quality or improve air quality and protect public health. Well, thanks, Joe, and, and thanks for having me on this podcast. I really appreciate the attention that your project is giving to these issues and appreciate the opportunity to talk about this particular memo. Uh, and be- be- before I do focus on the memo, I just want to pick up on something that you said a minute ago um, that re- referred to how uh, complicated these issues are. Um, and how, in some ways, under the radar, 
some of these changes are that the EPA is now making. Um, the, the decades history of air quality control in this country is an incredible success story from a public health perspective, uh, but it is complicated. And uh, most people in the country really would have no reason to understand um, uh, all the decisions and processes and analyses that go into uh, keeping the air clean in this country. What they know about is whether the air is clean or not, whether their child is having an asthma attack on a hot day or whether they have to wash off their uh, their lawn furniture because of the soot that gets deposited on it. So, um, so it is important for people to understand that there are things going on at this agency that um, might not appear very dramatic on the surface, but could have a big, big impact on the way we protect public health in the country. Exactly. It's almost as if the complexity of the processes that are being addressed by these changes and the complexity of the changes themselves are working to Pruitt's advantage. They're a, a kind of, of uh, camouflage or, uh, or even a... a, 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 a a, a, a dulling of the senses that uh, that many people experience when they when they try to look at these complex issues. Well, that that's right, and it's and in some ways it's a little bit like changes to, to the tax code. It's so complicated that your eyes just glaze over and um, you you give up um, on understanding. Um, so, but there are people in the country that um, are very smart and experienced on these issues and are paying attention, and so that's a good thing. Um, this particular memo, which came out on May 9th, is, is actually one in a series of memos that have come out, um, reflect or policy statements um, uh, um, addressing specific uh, legal regulatory processes under the Federal Clean Air Act. This one in particular deals with probably the most fundamental task that EPA has to do under the Clean Air Act, which is to establish the national ambient air quality standards. Um, these are the, uh, the levels that the EPA administrator sets for a, a relatively small handful of pervasive air pollutants that um, are intended to protect the public health broadly. And it is a process that's been going on for decades. Um, it is, of course, a process that has evolved over time, um, and, and nobody would say that the process is perfect. Um, so uh, over the years, uh, administrators have made this change or that change, or the career staff at EPA have, have fine-tuned the process, has made it more efficient, um, and, uh, and this is the latest iteration. Um, unfortunately, there are a number of things in this policy and the procedural changes that are um, being will be implemented through this policy um, that are very concerning from the perspective of a um, uh, a, a transparent, um, uh, uh, thorough science-based process um, that is is what served the country so well in setting these standards. If people picture the air in Los Angeles in the 1970s, or quite frankly, the air in Beijing, China right now, um, what we're, what in both cases we're talking about is the kind of uh, health-threatening air pollution that these standards um, were meant to solve, and that here in the States in the last several decades, um, we've gone a long, long, long way to solving. So this really is the this is the 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 core 
of the core of uh, EPA's uh, public health mission. Yes, that, that's that's absolutely right. And we're we're a long way from LA in the 70s, and we're a long way from Beijing. Um, and and that's a very very good thing for public health here. Well, unfortunately for your listeners, I think before I even give high level points, um, I, I need to take a minute and describe what these standards are, because um, the changes that are being proposed here are hard to understand if you if you don't have an appreciation for what the standards are. So this is a measure, the National Ambient Air Quality Standard. Let's take ozone. Um, just as an example to talk about. Ozone is um, what we often uh, think of as urban smog. Um, it's the result of emissions from motor vehicles, factories, and many activities of daily life um, that, that um, especially in hot, sunny climates, uh, mix in the atmosphere near the ground. Um, they get carried by the wind. They um, uh, perform complicated chemical reactions over time and space, uh, and they form ozone, um, which is a molecule that is dangerous to breathe. It is a lung irritant. Um, it's, uh, some have described it as like giving your lungs a sunburn. Um, so we don't want it at ground level. We do want it up in the, in the uh, upper atmosphere to protect us from UV radiation. But um, on the ground, it, it is a lung irritant and, uh, and dangerous for people. So um, it is, it has been um, ubiquitous across the country, especially in big metropolitan areas where there's a lot of human activity, um, but also big uh, sources of emissions like power plants and other big, big factories, even if they are located in remote locations, can contribute these pollutants that travel downwind and combine with other pollutants to create ozone. The point of the National Ambient Air Quality Standard is to establish, based on scientific evidence, studies, um, analyses, epidemiological studies over time, what level of ozone in the air is safe for public health. And the Clean Air Act is very precise about this. It says the administrator needs to set that standard to protect the public health with an adequate margin of safety. Now, that doesn't mean that um, there can be zero ozone in the air, um, and that the standard has never been set that way. Um, But the administrator has to make a judgment about um, what's a safe level for the public health, not for every individual in the country, but for the public health generally with an adequate margin of safety. And that has been interpreted to mean taking into account people who are particularly sensitive to air pollution, like asthmatics, people with pre-existing lung diseases, people with heart conditions, the elderly, the very young. So that is the protective standard that we have. Now, the way, one way to think about this National Ambient Air Quality Standard is it's, it's like um, the, the uh, American Medical Association um, establishing what is a healthy blood pressure or a healthy cholesterol level. Um, it is a level that is set uh, without regard to how do we actually achieve that level um, because what we want to know is what is clean and healthy air. And then we'll go about the process of actually reducing emissions to get there. Uh, but we don't want to uh, compromise our decision about what is healthy air by, by injecting into it, oh, it's going to be very hard to get there, so we'll set the standard lower. It would be like saying, my, you know, my, my ideal um, blood pressure is, is, is 
120 over 80, but it's going to be really hard for me to get there. So we'll just say that my ideal blood pressure is 130 over 80. Well, that's not my ideal blood pressure. Um, and so what we want is a standard that actually reflects that uh, scientific-based judgment about what's healthy. Okay. So um, what is the problem with this May 9th memo? Um, in the in a nutshell, the biggest problem with it is that it starts to blur the decision, the scientific-based decision-making of what is the standard with considerations of other things that are relevant to how do we get there once we know uh, where it is. It does this by um, by combining various processes that um, historically have been uh, separated. Um, the, tr- traditionally, the EPA does a significant science review, and once that science review is done, then information is developed and analyzed to help decide what are the appropriate policy options for the administrator. It does that by compressing the various review um, uh, steps into um, into a single process um, in the interest of speeding things up. Um, and while it is certainly important that EPA do these reviews in a timely way, um, it is uh, it should not be done in a way that sacrifices uh, the time needed for scientists to do their work um, and for the, pr- the the process to be transparent and open to the public. So basically, it sounds like if EPA is uh, doomed to follow this new memo and adopt a new process, um, if and when it sets new health-based air quality standards, what it is at great risk of doing is uh, simply deciding that a healthy blood pressure level is 130 over 80 as opposed to, say, 120 over 80. And uh, to fill in here a bit, it's because instead of just having science experts uh, examine the latest research and in the company of other science experts answer the question about healthy levels of air quality or pollution, they will also have to account to, say, economists or lawyers or uh, uh, interests from other disciplines who will have an interest in the answer being different, uh, even if the different answer is not the right answer. That, that's correct, Joe. And it is clear that that is not legal under the Clean Air Act. Um, this is one of the biggest um, criticisms that has been put forward about this policy. Um, the, these, the, the interests of, uh, of various stakeholders in having economic considerations be part of the process to set this health standard, um, uh, th- these, are n- these are not new. So people have been raising these for years and, in fact, have brought them in through legal challenges to standards. Um, and the Supreme Court of the United States has ruled on this question and has said, no, this process is about establishing the appropriate health standard. There's pages and pages in the Clean Air Act that talk about once you know what that healthy level is, then, then, then how do the states go about planning to achieve it? And, and, and that process 
has actually worked pretty well over time as well, um, which is reflected in the fact that our air quality is so much cleaner than it was 40 years ago. Um, and the Supreme Court has recognized that those are very two distinct processes. Um, the, the, the people need to remember that the that a key part of the importance of these standards is notifying the public about whether the air quality is healthy or not. I'm sure that people are familiar with ozone action days or the, the ozone, the air quality index, um, which is used broadly across the country by, um, by air quality agencies, uh, weather um, uh, forecasters and such to let people know tomorrow is going to be a moderate air quality day or a good air quality day. Um, and, and that information is based uh, directly on what this national ambient air quality standard is. Uh, and that's the information that a mom or dad uses to know whether um, their son or daughter needs to have their inhaler with them or maybe stay in from recess uh, on a particularly bad air quality day um, or make a decision about whether to, to go to band practice or, or, or little league practice. Um, and if, if, if that warning information is based on a decision that has been affected by well, it's going to cost a lot of money or take a lot of time for us to achieve that level, uh, that is not going to provide the kind of health protection that the Clean Air Act says people are entitled to. So essentially, if the uh, problem that this memo is trying to solve is that some people think we can't afford the answer to the question, what does 2 plus 2 equal, we can't afford that answer to be 4, then let's uh, make the answer one that we can afford so that now 2 plus 2 could turn out to be 5 or 6 or 7. Or 3 because it's cheaper. Exactly. The, the problem is 2 plus 2 equals 4, and people need to, need to know that sum. I think you, you, you also put your finger on something else, which is that this standard, given the way the Clean Air Act is meant to work and indeed how it has worked um, is what is but the first in a series of steps that lead to actual reductions in pollution. That this is the this is the this is the pollution cutting engine um, that's at the heart of the Clean Air Act. And if you tamper with it so that you're getting uh, an answer different from four, when you ask the question two plus two, you're not only coming up with misleading information, but you're also fouling the very mechanism that drives the air pollution reductions that we've seen over time and that have been instrumental to uh, dramatic improvements in air quality. Yeah, um, that, that's right. Let me, let me mention two other aspects of this memo that I think are, are relevant and important here. Um, one is that uh, the, the memo reflects correctly uh, that EPA has, um, uh, in many cases, failed to meet its statutory deadline on reviewing these standards. Um, the Clean Air Act is a is a remarkable document um, in in one way uh, because it requires EPA to review standards that it has set uh, to see whether they need to be updated. Not just these standards, but a lot of the um, air pollution standards that we have in this country, um, which is really, as I say, remarkable and and so important. So, if you if you set a standard in 1980 um, for um, a safe level of ozone in the air, 
Um, and then there's a bunch of science that's done, uh, research by, um, by various um, researchers that show that that standard um, doesn't actually protect the public health. We've learned more, um, and lower levels of ozone are actually dangerous to people. The Clean Air Act um, uh, captures that and says, well, EPA needs to come back and take a look at that standard periodically and decide whether it's still protective. Um, and, and it says that EPA should do that every five years. Uh, there are six pervasive air pollutants for which EPA has set standards over time, um, and it has proven to be very challenging for EPA to meet that five-year review deadline for all six of those pollutants on an ongoing basis. That That is true, um, and, um, and EPA should always um, strive to meet its statutory deadlines as, as much as it can. Um, the longer you go, of course, between reviews, uh, the more science you may accumulate, uh, which makes it even harder to get the review done quickly. It sort of exacerbates um, the problem. And, in fact, there was a long period of time where EPA did not update these standards. And so when we came into um, the first term of the Obama administration, um, we had a number of these standards that were due to be reviewed. So um, I, I, I don't quibble with uh, a desire on the part of this administration to have the process be as efficient as possible to make sure that EPA does, in fact, meet its deadlines. However, um, it is proposing to do that by collapsing the science review and the policy review together into a single document, which, um, in the view of many, will really compromise EPA's ability to have a, um, a neutral and thorough science review done by career scientists um, uh, that then the policy analysts and ultimately the, the administrator will be able to consider in a thoughtful way and in a way that allows for um, a proposal, um, an opportunity for public comment, and then thoughtful consideration of those comments. Um, in particular, this is an era where um, EPA, um, uh, the, the administrator and the, and the administration are proposing to cut EPA's budget to reduce staff, and it's going to be even harder for uh, EPA to speed these processes up when they have fewer staff to accomplish the work. What you're describing in the memo's alleged focus on meeting the statutory deadlines, you've described a situation where uh, Pruitt is using uh, the tail to wag the dog. Um, the point of the periodic reviews that Congress built into the Clean Air Act is that science and knowledge continually advance. And uh, what was understood when, say, a standard was set in 2008 or 2015 uh, can easily be eclipsed by superior understanding that the science community has come to vis-a-vis a pollutant like ozone or uh, another uh, pollutant like fine particles. Right. Uh, and that really what Congress intended was to put into law what is uh, second nature to science, which is that you've got to do justice to learning, analysis, understanding, and then applying all that to decision making. Yes, if your, if your uh, and, goal is protecting public health, which exactly, is, and what it is under the Clean Air Act, and and the and the uh, the the sword and the shield um, for protecting public health is is health science, right? Uh, and and it doesn't mean that 
that this is a continual process to ensure that the standards get higher over time. It all depends on what the science says. Exactly. So there have been occasions where EPA has said the standard that we set five years ago, ten years ago, is still good. There's no new science that suggests it's not sufficiently protected. But to, but to rush the process, to shortcut the process, just to make the deadline, actually is, is, is turning the, the, is turning the logic of the Clean Air Act, the logic that served uh, the U.S. so well, uh, upside down. That's right. That's right. Um, another interesting um, uh, aspect of this, uh, I think, um, uh, characterized as a way to save time, is that the memo specifically says that EPA should not reach out to other federal agencies to consult with them as they are going through this process. Um, uh, which is um, uh, uh, an interesting step to leave out. I don't know why you would um, want to be explicit about excluding EPA's ability to reach out to other um, relevant experts uh, across the federal government. Um, back in 2009, when, when Lisa Jackson um, was administrator, uh, she also had issued a, a memo about the NACS process in which she specifically um, uh, encouraged the, the career staff to do that sort of consultation. Um, so this seems to be perhaps a reaction to, to, to that statement by Lisa Jackson uh, back in 2009. The fifth principle in this memo has to do with um, issuing timely implementation regulations and guidance. So this goes to that part two that I described. Part one is what is healthy air quality? Part two is how do we get there? And uh, under the Clean Air Act, the, 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 much of the work of attaining the standards is done through individual state planning processes. Um, there are, of course, federal regulations like the clean car standards and, and, and many other things that, that um, apply nationally that help states improve their air quality. Um, but each state develops a plan for its areas that don't meet whatever the new standard is, and figure out how best to get there. And that is, that is the federal-state partnership at its best. Um, the, the, um, the setting of the standard has traditionally happened, and then after that, um, their EPA generally issues a series of implementation regulations uh, to guide states in doing those planning processes. And states and, um, and, and others have been frustrated at the amount of time that it has sometimes taken EPA to get those implementing regulations out. I spent time as an air director in the state of Indiana, and I likewise was frustrated um, at the length of time that it took EPA to get those regulations out. Um, having spent seven and a half years at, at EPA now, um, I have a much better appreciation for, for why it takes a long time to do those regulations. Um, but nevertheless, it is, a, it is frustrating. So there has been a call over time from some, not everybody by any means, that EPA should issue its implementing regulations at the very same moment that it issues a revision to a national ambient air quality standard. And, and in the abstract, that sounds great. Um, uh, states get the new standard and they get their their marching orders at the same time. The problem with that is, and EPA has explained this um, uh, every time this has come up, is in order to do that, EPA would essentially have to prejudge what the standard is 
at the very same time that it is going through a presumably legitimate public process to set that standard. So how can EPA career staff be writing implementation regulations for a standard that the administrator has not yet finalized? Um, that would that would really make a, a mockery of the deliberative and public process that we use in this country to establish important things like air quality standards. Now, I will say that um, uh, during the Obama administration, uh, we went through a, a, a very extensive process working directly with states to figure out how to streamline the process of getting guidance out to them promptly, as promptly as possible, in a stepwise fashion. So let's figure out there are many steps in the implementation process. What's the guidance that the states need first? EPA will prioritize that. And by when do they need it? EPA will strive to meet those deadlines. Then what's the next thing they need? And what's the next thing they need? And we came up with a um, a pretty good mutual understanding between the states and EPA about the types of guidance that were needed and when. The other thing is that over time, it has gotten more streamlined for EPA to do this guidance because um, it, over the last eight years, um, we did this a number of times. And so it doesn't change all that much from time to time to time. So states really do have a pretty good idea of the steps they're going to need to go through every time one of these standards comes out. Right. So it's, it's not as if the... Um uh, the EPA or the states are are starting from scratch at any given point. These are, are well-established practices, mechanisms, and indeed the EPA and the states themselves over on the policy or program or actions side um, have uh, a, a wealth of knowledge um, that's already at their disposal. Right. Um, and essentially what the implementation regulations do prov- is provide uh, an extension and improvement and refinement of that. Right, right. You, you know, as I listen to you talk about the, the May 9th memo, it, I, I, I can't resist a, a, a metaphor, an analogy. It, it feels as if what uh, Scott Pruitt has done here is bred a three-tailed dog, and he's using each of the tails to wag the dog, um, uh, the dog being uh, health science-based air quality standards that then are used both to inform the public of uh, true news as opposed to fake news about uh, air quality, and then simultaneously to guide the EPA and the states through uh, a new round or new programs to achieve uh, pollution reduction. But instead, he's using um, uh, the convenience of uh, 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 Talking points about deadlines or processes um, uh, to uh, to wag that dog and really turn things upside down. As always, Joe, you are you are a master of metaphor. <laughs> can, can I can I um, mention one other issue? Yes. Um, uh, about this, so so you mentioned that um, the administration is uh, is putting out a number of proposals and policies to. Um, to go to the very heart of how EPA does its business, which um, in most cases is founded on um, true, true and serious scientific work. Uh, one of those um, uh, policies turned into a regulatory proposal um, has to do with the kinds of science 
that EPA scientists will be able to um, uh, to use, um, and in particular, this um, uh, this public debate about uh, whether every last bit of personal data that uh, may go into conducting one of these big um, health-based studies should be available to the public so that um, anybody in this country would be able to work with the data and replicate the, the studies. And, um, and you probably have another podcast on that proposal specifically or, or perhaps will in the future. Um, but I, I, there's a lot of controversy about that. The scientific community, I, I, have, I don't think I've ever seen such an outpouring um, of opposition and objection, uh, perhaps the recent immigration um, uh, uh, issues are doing that. Um, certainly they are. But, but this, for something as wonky as how you set air quality standards, this has been um, a tremendous outpouring of opposition from the scientific community across the country. Um, that notion creeps into this memo as well um, and is, is really specifically mentioned in um, uh, the, the section that uh, establishes the um, Standardized questions that EPA will will pose to its scientific advisory committee. Um, there's a specific question about um, uh, does the science um, uh, meet appropriate criteria um, to the words are ensure transparency in the evaluation, assessment, and characterization characterization of key scientific evidence. Um, that is a direct reference um, to this other process of um, uh, of uh, uh, screening or censoring the scientific studies that EPA scientists would be allowed to use. And when you put that together with the changes that this administration has made, this EPA has made, about um, the who they are putting onto their um, external uh, expert advisory committees, um, that is a recipe for further compromising um, a, a process that with with scientific integrity. People listening to this podcast, Janet, will have found it on the part of our website that is looking at the whole breadth of these changes. And uh, uh, nearby on the website will be uh, two short papers we've uh, written about uh, the changes in the agency's approach to science. But again, this seems to add up to um, a design such that if you really, really want the sum of two plus two to equal some number other than four, uh, because you say you want to meet a deadline or because you want to avoid uh, imposing uh, costs real or imagined, um, then what uh, is being engineered here uh, is an ability to get the answer to two plus two to be something other than four. Janet, you mentioned that the Supreme Court has already ruled that it's illegal under the Clean Air Act to take what, from a science perspective, is extraneous issues into consideration. I guess I have a, a, a reaction and a question. The reaction is this. It seems that one of the more insidious elements of this memo is that it may be an attempt to reintroduce into the EPA process a practice that's illegal, right. um, or has been found to be illegal by the Supreme Court, but that might still escape review by the courts the next time 
an ambient air quality standard is issued. I don't know if you have the same concern, but this is really a sort of stealth amendment to the Clean Air Act taking place without either a congressional vote or judicial review. Well, uh, I do have that concern. And if there's one thing that's clear, it's that the Supreme Court has said um, and and then reiterated, uh, and other courts have too, multiple times, that the agency may not consider the cost of implementation when reviewing and revising the standards. That's a decision that was made in, in 2001 in a case called Whitman versus American Trucking Association, and the decision was um, w- was authored by Justice Scalia. So um, it, it's very, very clear. Now, what the what the memo says here, at, and and I should say that this that this policy direction to EPA. Um, uh, does seem to introduce those issues, consideration of costs and implementation and, and economic effects and, and those sorts of extraneous factors, um, back into this review. In fact, um, it very clearly says in principle two that those are among the factors that the expert, uh, external advisory committee should be giving EPA advice on during the process of a particular standard review. Now, I think the way this uh, the administrator tries to uh, insulate uh, this memo from legal challenge is with phrases like, advice on some of these topics may not be directly relevant to EPA's process of setting primary standards, um, and, and caveat language like that. Uh, but I am confident that if a process of setting a standard, it reflects consideration of these kinds of factors, that it will be legally challenged and it will be found to be inconsistent with the ruling in uh, Whitman versus American Trucking Association. It sounds, though, that what we're seeing is despite the the confidence that I think we both have that a fair-minded court would uh, apply the Supreme Court precedent and find this approach illegal, it sounds like, nevertheless, Scott Pruitt, uh, the author of this memo, is really trying to devise and apply a stealth strategy for directly subverting the current Supreme Court holding which itself was based on a, a straightforward interpretation of the Clean Air Act itself. Yeah, that's that's right. You know, it's 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 interesting how um, things take on um, auras, uh, and it, it's it's almost as if there is a there is a version of reality that EPA setting air quality standards is not for the purpose of protecting the public health but for the purpose of making state and industry's lives difficult. And, uh, and, and, and that's what EPA is, is motivated to do every time. And, of course, that's ridiculous, and that is not what Congress set up this process to do. Um, the Congress set up the process where EPA would make these decisions about um, what, we, what level of air quality we should have in this country. It should be... Uh, uniform, that should be a, a minimum expectation of healthy air quality all across the country so that a child in Florida and a child in Oregon and a child in Texas and a child in Indiana are entitled to the same level of, of healthy air. And then 
we go about the business of getting there. And some areas in this country have more of a challenge than others. EPA just issued uh, uh, what are called designations, um, identifying those areas of the country that don't meet the ozone standard that was set in 2015. And, and much of California has poor air quality. That's millions of Americans who are breathing air quality that isn't healthy for them. Um, that is what the work of the Clean Air Act is about. It is not a um, uh, some kind of a, uh, a strategy to make life, life difficult um, for industry. And in fact, um, huge progress has been made over the years um, uh, in, in ways that uh, that that have created new uh, technologies for air quality control um, that uh, American companies can use and American inventors can sell overseas. And it's been a ter- tremendous success success story, both in terms of economic vitality and public health protection. Uh, as one uh, person to another, both of whom have been privileged to work with the Clean Air Act, um, it seems as if what Congress did was harness public health protection to the progress of science, the progress of the economy, and the progress of technology. And what this memo, along with many other steps that Scott Pruitt is trying to take, uh, is uh, seems to be designed to do is to sever that harness, leaving public health behind, even as science and technology and the economy move forward. Uh, and that really undercuts both the Clean Air Act itself and uh, the public health mission um, that the public has counted on the agency to, to fulfill. That's right. And I don't think that the American people will um, be happy with a result where uh, we go backwards on air quality protection. And, um, and I'm, you know, I'm relatively confident that, that, that ultimately um, that will not happen. Well, Janet, I have to say, as somebody who had the extreme good luck of being your colleague at the EPA during the Obama administration, I really enjoyed talking to you about what is your and my favorite subject. And I really appreciate what a wonderful job you did in explaining what we both acknowledge to be a complicated subject, but a subject where the public health stakes are, are so high. Well, thank you, Joe. And um, you, you, as one who knows me, knows that I could talk about the Clean Air Act all day long and often do. So I appreciate the opportunity to, to join you. And again, thanks for the work that you and your project are doing to uh, explain these things. Great. Thanks a lot. <laughs>